This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast dressing up popular culture to shield the world from the naked truth. Today we're discussing costume design with guest Whitney Ann Adams. This is Mark Linsenwire wearing a six feet wide dress to enforce social distancing in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Erica Spires in New York City. And I'm just waiting for my Whitney Ann Adams designed face mask to come in. <laughs> And I'm Brian Hurt, wearing a vintage costume from 40 years ago, which is to say my style hasn't changed in 40 years. Blue jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> Welcome, Whitney. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining us, Whitney. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're so excited that we got Whitney on here. Whitney's a friend of mine here in New York, but she's actually in Atlanta right now, and she's holed up in her apartment. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. This is my third movie in a row in Atlanta, so I guess I basically live here now. This is my third apartment in Atlanta. I was here doing a movie for MTV, and it was such a beautiful, wonderful movie, but we had to shut down due to the global emergency. But luckily, I have my cat, and I have lots of movies to watch, and I have some work on the movie to do, so I'm keeping busy and sane. (laughs) This is going to be a great evergreen podcast. We'll just call it the global emergency. And years from now, people will wonder what that was. I will say there's a silver lining to everything. All these awesome creatives who would otherwise not have time for us are suddenly sitting on their hands saying, I can podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Because we kept trying to find a date and I'm like, oh, I'm going back to Atlanta. Sorry. Yes, that's going to be the, the only art form left, podcasting. It's true. We're, we're safe. We're safe when we're podcasting. I love it. Why might these listeners know your work, even if they may not know your name yet? Where can they find your work? Well, I designed a bunch of movies. One of the biggest ones last year was Happy Death Day to You, which was a sequel to Happy Death Day. It's a lovely comedy horror slasher movie where our sequel is much more of a sci-fi comedy romance drama twist. It's kind of all genres in a very fun way. I have a bunch of movies on Netflix, Irreplaceable You, The Eyes of My Mother. And then the biggest movie that you might have seen is I was the assistant designer of The Great Gatsby. Did you get to hold the Oscar? I did. Get it into your hands? I was at the Oscars. Uh, I finished altering my boss's dress about 10 minutes before she had to walk the red carpet. Oh, my God. Did you get in the building? I didn't get in the building, but we had a lot of champagne at the Chateau Marmont after the fanciest night of my life. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) It was wild. It was great. Great. And you're also a personal, what do you call it? That was wrong. Personal stylist? You're a personal stylist. Yes, that's it. For one Brian Tyree Henry, is that correct? Yes, I am. Brian is one of my favorite people in the world, and he's so fun to dress because he dresses his personality. We get to really have a lot of fun, and that's the best part about working with him. So did you decide with Brian when you started assisting him what his personality was and how to dress him like that? Did you bring that out in him, or was he already like, I like this, I like that? Like, How do you even go about doing that? I think it was kind of in tandem because when we met, he was in my movie Irreplaceable You and we just had one of the best fittings ever. 
we just had this moment where every single thing I put on him fit and was perfect. He's like, I never would have picked this out. This is never something that I would have thought I would have put on my body. And I got his vibe and I wanted to show more of who he was as a person. And he was not dressing quite as big as I think I wanted to go with him because he has a big personality. But he had also just lost a bunch of weight from the show Atlanta. And so he didn't have many clothes in, in that size. And so it was fun to really explore what his new body was like. And then, you know, everyone changes, but we've sort of changed with every role that he's taken and his coming out into what kind of clothes he wants to wear. I know definitely I would need a stylist where I had to become super famous because I am almost clothes blind. Is that just something that is common among men, particularly that I feel like this is going to influence the extent to which we perceive costumes in film, on TV, but just as Brian said in the opening, like that there is a standard, at least if you're sort of outside professional environments, that you can dress the same as a guy between age six and age 60 or whatever, you know, without penalty. The thing about menswear is that it evolves very, very slowly. Women's wear, there's a lot bigger range of different things that women can wear. Whereas with menswear, it's a lot more specific and all the differences are very, very subtle in terms of how big a collar is and what kind of collar. And all of those differences are very small, whereas women really can run the gamut and the different types of dress and dresses, shorts. <laughs> different shapes, whereas menswear is a lot more closed off. And I think that has then allowed, you know, women growing up or girls growing up to be, you know, look at all these different, just be more interested in clothes. I mean, that's not the standard, but I think for me growing up, I loved clothes because there were so many different options. I think it's less interesting sometimes as a boy growing up in the world because there's less options. Luckily now there's so many more style icons for both men, women, uh, non-binary. And so there's a lot more out there. And I think men are getting a lot more interested in clothes. But for the longest time, it was a girl's thing. And thankfully, now we're in a, we're in a world where it's more everybody's thing. So your excuse is wearing thin, Mark. Not that I'm pointing fingers. I thought maybe it was going the opposite way, that it was not optional for women before. And now with the new attitudes toward gender, that women can lose no social status, perhaps by not caring about clothes either, any more than men do. Yeah, I think that's probably a little bit true as well, right? That's also true, completely. I think you can choose whether you care or not. We're in a world where you can choose what you want to do. But for me, I think clothes are very important because it's how you present yourself to the world. It's also how you instill confidence in yourself. For me, I've been getting dressed every day that I can here in quarantine, even if I'm just dressing for myself, because it makes me feel better. It improves my mood. It makes me happier because I'm wearing clothes that bring me joy. And so it's a lot more of a mood booster, even if it's just for myself. You see, I really feel the reverse because every time we do this podcast, I, I can't wear my track pants because they rustle. And so I'm forced to put on these very uncomfortable blue jeans. Uh, I've said too much. Someone else talk. See, all you had to do was get your stuff from Mack Weldon. You know, you had to get the appropriate pants. They would be comfortable and fashionable all at once. Mack Weldon. They're not paying us. Darn this. it. Come on back, Mack Weldon. <laughs> So clearly, if you're doing a period piece, if you're doing a costume drama, as they call them, then the costume work is going to attract notice. But something like Happy Death Day, it's more subtle. I saw you did some things like design the giant, gross baby mascot, sports mascot. 
So, you know, a couple flashy things like that, but for the most part, you know, it's just subtle character things in an environment, a campus environment where people probably would be dressing in a very boring way. So do you feel like you have to adhere to some standards of naturalism or no, you're just part of the cinematography and the set dressing and you can really kind of exaggerate things beyond what they would be in a setting like that? The thing about designing contemporary or things that are not costume, not a period drama, I find it's very, very difficult in a very different way because you have to really adhere to what is normal life and in order for a movie like Happy Death Day to work, because there's some very fantastical elements, is that everything else needs to be grounded. And so you really don't want to take yourself out of it by being like, that's not what college kids wear. That's not truthful to who that person is. So it's really subtle to try to find out who these characters are and not make them one-dimensional. And it is down to where do these kids shop, making sure that I'm shopping clothes from places that they could afford. How long have they had these pieces in their wardrobe? Where did they come from? Case in point with Happy Death Day with our lead actress, she had 17 costumes in the sequel. She only had two in the first movie or a couple. And so we really wanted to see more of who she was. Minor spoiler alert, all of her clothes come from this alternate dimension. So in this other dimension, there's some things about her life that are different and her clothing really reflected that. So it's finding all of these moments that feel very true and real. And that's why I really like doing contemporary because it is difficult to reflect these real people and you want to humanize them and make them feel completely a real person. How do you shop in an alternate dimension? Do you just use one of the stores and then like if she's a Gap girl, do you go to the Gap and you like change it ever so slightly? Or are we talking like you just go off the rails and create a store in your mind and shop there, so to speak? For me, the biggest thing was in this alternate dimension, her mother is alive. And so most of her clothing comes from the fact that she's more influenced by her mother. And so her things are, are less revealing. They're more thoughtful and they just have a lot more influence uh, from her. So that's where our starting point was with her closet. Yeah, I wonder you know, how much in the average, in a movie you work on, is original design versus more curating. I mean, it, it, similarly, I'll see, you know, Wes Anderson's films are very known for their songs. And in fact, he picks them out. There's all these old kink songs and things. But then you'll see, okay, so the score is by Mark Mothersbaugh. Well, like, what did he do? Like, did he just write the interstitial? But presumably, if you're the person, you know, then you curate the rest of it. You help figure out what music goes on which beat. Are you likewise, you know, this person will shop at The Gap. So let's just go to The Gap and get a bunch of stuff. That's exactly kind of, in a sense, what we do in a lot of ways is that we really do search the world because everyone's closets, every, you know, you think about your personal closet, you have clothes from so many different places and stores or things or gifts or, so we all have this trail of different places that we've shopped. And so you can't just go to one place and be like, let's get all of their wardrobe, but they can feel like a gap person or... For example, these college kids, you want you think, oh, okay, they probably don't have a ton of money. They're shopping at the mall. Like, what stores are at the mall? But for me, my favorite part is the treasure hunt to find those pieces that really tell the character's story. So it's thrifting. It's shopping on Etsy. It's going to all the different malls and finding those pieces that are really interesting and not getting, oh, I went to Gap and got all of these plain T-shirts. Well, 
was it the right plain t-shirt? Did it have the right weave? Did it have right, the right color balance for the scene that we're going to be in? I'm checking in with the production designer to make sure that our colors aren't clashing. Talking to the DP, how are they going to shoot the shot? How light is it going to be? How dark? And so you have to take all of these elements together. And so it's not just shopping for things. It's about thinking about what the whole picture is going to look like. I really love that. I feel like the most naive view of costume design is we're just dressing people the way they dress, right? And if it's done well, you don't notice it. And so maybe it's sort of thankless from that respect, but there really is storytelling that's going on with it. And we've talked before about this on this podcast that you don't have a lot of time in two hours to tell your story. So you have to use every trick, every aspect from no line of dialogue should be wasted and the music and the cinematography and the costumes. And if you make it a little exaggerated, it means one thing. And if you make it grotesque, it means something else. It's one of those things I admit I don't know enough about to really appreciate. It's every year when it comes to the Oscars, people review the picks in these categories where you have to be someone of a a practitioner expert like yourself to be able to appreciate it. And someone says, I can't believe this got nominated for this. If you look at the extras, you know, this costuming, whatever, or this sound editing was too loud, or this sound mixing was too whatever. Well, first, do you watch a lot of movies that you're not involved with? A ton. I was a cinephile from like age two. I watched Mary Poppins every day for six months. And so when I learned to talk, I had a British accent, Dick Van Dyke style. So movies have been my life for a very long time. (laughs) Do you watch as a gourmand just to consume and consume, or do you really have a critical eye for what they're doing and walk away thinking maybe how you would do it better but differently or whatever you would do as a, not as a movie watcher, but as a, as a costumer? I feel like I can't completely turn that part of my brain off. So when I do anything that I would do watch, I think about how they did it or where do they get that piece? I often see pieces I've used in movies and other shows. So that's fun. I'm like, oh, they were shopping about the same time I was. So it makes me think about the timeline of when they shot that movie or show, and then my brain gets a little twisted. So I try to stay focused on what I'm watching. But usually if it, there's something I'm really into, I lose thinking about the costumes entirely, and I just get pulled into the story. And that's my favorite part, is when I don't want people to necessarily notice my costume design unless it's explicitly intentional. I want it to feel like a very subtle commentary on a character, and I want you to see that character as a full living being and not think about exactly what they're wearing, but know that you're being influenced by their clothing. I just had the experience today. We just decided two days ago we were going to do this. So I watched Piercing, one of your movies that that you haven't mentioned here, and was watching it specifically. You know, they're only like two characters. You know, there may maybe four people show on the screen ever. And so just paying attention to what everybody is wearing at any given point. And wow, that's, you know, that shirt he's wearing at the beginning, that looks kind of nicer than a normal person would be wearing in their house, taking care of their baby. And man, but the plot of this is just, it's a guy, he's planning a murder. So he goes to a hotel and he's invited a prostitute over and he wears the nicest suit and they make a kind of a point of, you know, where later like it gets confiscated by somebody because it's so nice. But nothing is actually said about it. So it was, it was interesting, you know, paying that close attention so that I couldn't get lost. I couldn't forget about the costuming in this case because that was sort of the point. And that was the case where in Piercing, the costume was very intentional and it was meant to be noticed. That movie was very highly stylized. And so that was very much on purpose. You wanted to notice these characters and they were larger than life. We were using 
the design as an amplification of their personalities, especially because it's such a short, very fantastical story. And so instead of grounding things like I usually do in sort of a more fantastical setting, this we really played it up when it was very fun. And we're pseudo set in the early 90s, that movie, but uh, there was a lot of 70s giallo references. And so we were just sort of, it was an homage to Italian giallo. And, and we had a lot of fun with the looks in that movie. I'm wondering if you guys, like me, have ever been distracted by the costuming in something to the point where you actually didn't care for it. Because I have one in mind. Everybody was talking about how stunning a simple favor was. This is the movie with Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. And certainly there were some beautiful pieces, but also some, to me, ridiculous pieces. I knew that they were probably there for a reason, but for me, I was just kind of drawn more to looking at the costumes than I was at listening to the story. Did you guys see that film? I did, but I don't remember, you know, it just goes with my clothes blindness. You know, I remember that there were some people that were supposed to come off as sort of more polished and rich than other people. But, you know, other than that, I don't know that a lot stuck with me. Well, like it was like at one point when Blake Lively came out and she had like the cane. I was like, oh, well, there, there's a look. And then Anna Kendrick had like a dress on at one point with this huge pattern on it. And it, I don't know, it, it just... I remember a lot of my gay friends being like, oh my God, they look so fabulous. I love that movie so much. And I was like, eh didn't really do it for me. <laughs> but was I like, was that what I was supposed to look at and care about? Or do you think they did it well? Like, did I miss something? I think for that movie, it was very much for style's sake. It was style for the sake of style's sake instead of character-based. I think it was character-based up to up into a point and you wanted to feel, oh, she's very eccentric, she's very interesting. She dresses in whatever she wants. She's her own woman. I think that's what you sort of take away from her fantastic outfits. But a few of them go really, really far and then sometimes it does get distracting. It seems like it's mostly sci-fi for me. That <laughs> That's when, you know, when these people are trying to have a discussion and like they have giant weird collar, you know, just, just any, any kind of really cheesy sci-fi or fantasy, if it's not done with the proper degree of subtlety, is going to... Completely. It's going to take you out of it because you're just like, what are they wearing? And then all you can focus on is this absurd costume. And then you're not, oh, I missed completely what they said and you got to back it up. And, and that is extremely frustrating. And you know you've gone too far. If anyone can just, they're just looking at the costume. I never want that to happen in a bad way. <laughs> It's like Star Trek through the ages, right? Some of the costumes, as you look at them, you're like, oh, that's amazing. And other times you're like, wow, that was definitely a product of its time. There was a moment in the movie To Die For where Nicole Kidman is dancing to Sweet Home Alabama and she's wearing this blue dress with big fluffy clouds on it. And that's a, a trademark of uh, Gus Van Zandt as he always has a scene with a sky with clouds, but he couldn't work it into that movie. So he put it on her, and I just could not stay emotionally invested in that scene. I was just... Did you just lose it? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're doing, but stop it. It just feels so out of place, and that's when a costume is distracting in a bad way, and it just takes away from the story, and I never, ever want that to happen in my work. It's like I would love people to notice the costumes when I want them to be noticed, but there are times when you just want to be in the story and feel like these people are authentic. Right. I guess it just has to match the rest of the elements that if the cinematography is really bright and brash and the characters themselves, I'm even just thinking of Zoe's 
Extraordinary Playlist, this current yes. TV show. I mean, the whole thing, everybody's breaking into song. So, like, the fact that she's wearing these, to me, we everybody's wearing these kind of overdone clothes, like, seems to fit with the rest of it. Completely. I mean, all of those bright floral shirts that she wears and all of her bright cardigans really matches with the whole theme of the show. And if you put those characters in, say, a different show, it would make absolutely no sense because the lighting and the production design and the big musical numbers, it all fits so well together. And that's why you need to have a team that really communicates. Like my director and my production designer and my DP, we all need to talk all the time in order to make sure we're always on the same page with everything. We had talked about Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist and Devs as two different shows taking place in Silicon Valley right now. So I just want to drop all those ridiculous people from, well, either show into the ridiculous setting of the other show to see what a total nightmare that would be. What a mismatch. <laughs> Completely. It wouldn't fit at all. I think the people in Devs at least dress like programmers, right? <laughs> Whereas these programmers, the guys <laughs> in the Zoe's, they're like, you know, really highly tailored, polished sort of look that no uh, programming guy would have the skill to put together, let's say that. <laughs> well, Devs is a world that is desaturated about 50%, so I mean, I don't know if anyone actually dresses that way either. The sun never shines. That's the thing about design, too, is that you know when a director creates a world, I always call it the sandbox I get to play in. Like I love, I never would want to direct because I can't create that sandbox, but I would love to come play in somebody else's sandbox <laughs> and figure out what their vibe and their look is. So since nobody listens to this podcast, haha, um, you can go ahead and dish about other people. Like what's a, what's just a terrible Brian, you're terrible. Example. No, no, no. Come on. You, you could tell us. Whitney, I, I promise. Mm-mm, I can't. <laughs> So an example from 50 years ago of... Well, I can tell you about designers I love. <laughs> What's your training? I graduated for, with a general theater degree from college and moved straight to New York to do Broadway. I love theater so much. I worked in theater for quite a few years. I was a tailor at a Broadway costume shop my first three years in New York. And then I was lucky enough to meet Baz Luhrmann and his wife, Catherine Martin, who became my boss for eight years. And then we did The Great Gatsby and numerous other projects. And then I stayed in the film world. And then I've been doing film ever since. But I've always been such a film fan that it made perfect sense once I made the transition. But I still love going to theater as much as possible. And how did you meet Baz Luhrmann and Catherine Martin? It's a funny story. So I won a costume design contest as part of their movie Australia. You had to design a costume for Nicole Kidman's character when she arrived in Australia. They had this uh, set-to-screen video series podcast with iTunes, and it was for high school and college kids. It was I was finishing my thesis in college. My favorite movie is Moulin Rouge. I had to enter this contest. I found out I won the whole thing. I won a trip to Australia. I emailed Catherine's website being, hey, I won your contest. Thank you for having it. Long story short, I got to meet her assistant when I went to Australia, and then I saw that Baz and CM were going to be in New York for the New York Musical Theater Festival back in 2010. Oh my God, 10 years ago. And I bought a ticket to the gala, and I emailed the assistant being like, hey, I happen to be going to the same gala that they're going to. Can I meet them? And then she's like, sure, we'll set something up. And then an hour later, she's like, oh, what are you up to these days? Tell her what I'm doing. 
And then an hour later, I get a phone call from their head producer in Australia being like, can you work for us for three weeks? And then it turned into eight years. (laughs) I'm finding it very difficult to imagine you preparing for this contest without Tim Gunn showing up midway. How's it going? (laughs) It's my only experience of watching people put costumes together is Project Runway. Luckily, this one I only had to draw, so I didn't have to make it, thank goodness. But luckily, I do have the skills. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a great story. It's wild. Yeah. So have you ever taken an actual class in costuming for film? I took what one class about? in college, an actual costume design for film class with a woman who had just graduated from the, the graduate program at my college and who's now one of my closest friends but she taught this class and we studied Bram Stoker's Dracula, one of my favorite costume design movies designed by the great designer Aiko Ishioka, who passed away about 10 years ago. But I was fortunate enough to work for her when I first moved to New York. I was her personal seamstress for a while. So we got to sit in her kitchen and she would tell me stories about being on set for Bram Stoker's Dracula, and she did Mirror Mirror. That was her last movie before she passed away. And she did one of my absolute favorite movies called The Fall that was filmed in over 40 countries. So I was very lucky to get to meet her. That is a great film. We never talk about that film. I mean, because it's, you know, it's been a while, but that is such a gorgeous film. Refresh my memory on what that movie is. The Fall is with Lee Pace. And he plays a stuntman on his first time being a stuntman in the, I think, I believe it's the 20s. He falls and breaks his back and he's in this hospital and he starts telling the story to this little girl and his stories sort of, you see them come to life in you know their imaginations, but he's using the stories to get morphine in order to kill himself. So <laughs> it's a wild story, but it's these beautiful dreamscapes and, and imagination and it's utterly stunning. Well, and Mirror Mirror that you mentioned being the source of the six foot wide dresses, according to the one of the articles we just looked at. She was making that movie when I was working for her and I told her to use my costume shop that I had worked in. I had gone off to work on Gatsby, but she used the costume shop I worked in for most of those dresses. So that was a pretty cool thing I got to do. Now, your great Gatsby was not the first time that had been adapted for the screen. I don't know how many, but I remember there was a Robert Redford version. Yes, that's the big famous one. Okay, so, you know before, well, I guess there were cliff notes when we were in high school, but the common thing to do was to write, watch the movie if you weren't going to at least write the book. But it's extraordinarily different from the book. That's a pitfall. Yes, our adaptation was much more accurate to the book. I mean, you have to cut out a certain amount of things just to fit into a movie. And I love the Robert Redford version, but it's extraordinarily different. I think what we tried to do with our movie is get it to feel a lot more like the book. Did you intentionally rewatch it? Did you intentionally not watch it? How much did you want to be informed of what they did? Or had you seen it so many times that you couldn't get the knowledge out of your head if you tried? I had only seen it a couple times and I did not watch it until after I was done working on the movie. I did read the Grey Gatsby book about 40 times. It was my job to pull out every visual reference in the book. Whoa. (laughs) what did those notes look like oh they're long i still have them it's a lot of information (laughs) 
And are you trying to find vintage clothing or you're just designing everything from scratch based on photos and things from the time? We want it to be as accurate as possible with what Fitzgerald described in the book, especially, you know, the pink suit that Gatsby wears during the big confrontation at the plaza. I think we really wanted to make sure to get as close to the characters that he described. I mean, there were some things we changed, like Myrtle wears a brown dress when we first meet her in the book, but we made it more, we made it red and fun and bright and much more the type of Myrtle that we wanted. So there's some things we weren't 100% accurate with, but we really wanted to make sure that we looked at everything. So there's obviously a lot of psychology that goes into viewers watching a movie and understanding who the character is based on the costuming. But as an actor, I noticed that there's also a lot of psychology involved on the back end as well from you to the actor themselves. I noticed just a little side story. I worked with the designer Milena Canonero on a musical a few years ago in Paris. And it was unclear whether or not my character, how much clothing I would have on at one point. And by the end of working with that woman on my first fitting, I thought she's the coolest one. And, And this is before I knew who she was and that she had a bunch of Academy Awards. But she made me feel so amazing that I would have done anything she wanted me to do. Like at one point she goes, I think you should go nude because you're absolutely stunning in this. And I was like, wow, okay. Um, (laughs) And we didn't end up going fully nude, but she got me to a point where I was so much more comfortable than I ever would have been if she was just like, here's what you're wearing and that's that. What is the psychology behind that? Because I, I know there are certain people, if you give them an inch, then they want to design their own costume, essentially. But other times, like you can totally shift the trajectory back to where you wanted it to be. For me, my most important job is to make sure that the actor is comfortable in their costume. Because if they are not comfortable, you can tell on screen and it doesn't feel real and it does not work. So I can design something as much as I want, but if it doesn't work For either the actor or the director, it's just going to feel wrong. My favorite part about this job is I get to be such a close collaborator with so many different people. And so I really want to make sure that the actor has a huge amount of input. I usually try to, as soon as I can get an actor on the phone or via email, I want to talk to them to see what they've been thinking about for their character. Because usually it's right, you know, in line with what I've been thinking. Sometimes it's different. So I want to make sure that they're thoughts are heard and very much taken into consideration because they're the ones who have to embody this character. And if they don't feel right, then we've lost. And so I want to make sure we're on the same page from day one and that they have a lot of input. The lead actor in my current movie, Troy Sivan, and he's super lovely and smart. And I wanted he, his character draws on his shoes. And so I've been having him do all these doodles for me. And then I have been taking his doodles and putting them together on these shoes. And so it's a great hand-in-hand collaboration where he gets to draw things. And then I get to put it into the reality that I want it to be. But we've done it together. And it's very much his hand. And so it feels a lot more real and authentic. I love that collaboration. That's my favorite part. Are you on set for continuity? Or is that someone else's job? Yeah, every time we establish a new costume, I'm there. But if we're doing anything that's stuff that's already been established, I have fittings and shopping and lots of other work to do. But anytime we're establishing something, I'm on set. And I love being on set. 
So what about crowds? I, one of the articles that you pointed out was talking about the happy death day to you stadium scene, which I would think if you have just scads and scads of extras, you just have them wear what they would normally wear, and then you kind of just reject certain things. <laughs> but it sounded like you were working with a fleet of assistant costumers to just dress all these people. Completely. And for me, I really want to make sure that crowds and any background are very much curated to the look for each movie. And it's different for each movie that I'm doing. But especially that crowd scene in the basketball, I wanted to make sure that people are wearing school colors, either the opposing team or our team. I had a bunch of school swag made that we gave out. And we had a the last movie I designed has a big football game in it. And so I had a contest for who could come with the best rally costume. I had people paint their faces. I had people make sweatshirts. And I had prizes for the best winners. So I want to make it fun, especially because it's not a great wage for extras. They're there all day. It's a long, hard job a lot of the time. And they're not thanked as much as they should because they are really necessary for movies. And so I want to make their job as fun as possible. And it was really fun to have a contest. And people bring that organicness that I can't do with all of the clothes that I have only has a certain amount of that organic feeling. Whereas people coming with their own clothes, it gives it that randomness that real life has. But it is a lot more, okay, that doesn't work. You can't wear graphics because you have to get graphics cleared. So there's you got to cover everyone's tattoos. There's all these stipulations. So there's a lot of those things that you're playing around with too with crowds. So that was something that really surprised me. I just found out this year, you would think that I would know this, but I did not, that you cannot have, did you guys know this? You cannot have tattoos on your body unless it's like cleared because that's someone else's artwork? Yep. What if you design it yourself and administer it yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Then you're fine. But yeah, we have to get everyone's tattoos covered unless they are cleared by the artist in paperwork form. So, and it's a lot of hoops to jump through and you're not going to do that for background extras because there's no time. So even in summer scenes, you got to be like, well, they got to wear long sleeves or you got to get makeup to cover some of them. So it's a lot of work. Let that be a lesson, dumb kids. <laughs> so the guys that like Keanu Reeves or somebody that, you know, famously, he has tattoos, right? I believe <laughs> I believe I remember seeing those in John Wick, although maybe that was just the character. I thought I thought I remembered Who's the lead guy in Leftovers, Justin? Thoreau, yeah. That he has, I think, the same tattoos in everything. So they just have as part of their contract, like, I've gotten the okay for body use. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of actors do that where it just is easier. But then also it's harder to differentiate themselves from their character then because that art is their own. So you usually want to cover them even if it's okay to use the art, especially if it's on a principal actor. I had an actor two movies ago who was playing, she's Indian and was playing an Indian American college kid. And she goes home for the summer to be with her parents. And so she couldn't have any tattoos as a character, but her as an actual actress, she's got a lot of tattoos and it took place over the summer. So we, I had to work in tandem with the makeup department to be like, okay, on this script day, she's wearing shorts. So you got to cover all of her leg tattoos. Okay, in this scene, I'll give her a sweater or give her pants so you don't have to cover those leg tattoos that day. It just becomes a big organizational thing. <laughs> so it does get very complicated. One of my laments of the modern age we're living in, where everything is on Netflix, is that I don't rent DVDs anymore or Blu-rays, I suppose. And I used to get most of my little bits of trivia about 
costumes and other things from watching the commentary tracks, right? You have like two hours to fill in a movie and often it'll be the actor or a director talking a little bit about just whatever is most on their mind in that scene. And that might be the costume. I feel like I've learned just these little things over the years and in modern times, in the last what we've been streaming for almost a decade now, maybe not quite. I just don't ever quite get that. The one thing that always struck me is some things may seem like schlock to a viewer, but even people who make schlock, I think, are taking their jobs very seriously sometimes. And they'll treat it. You know, it was um, the movie Battlefield Earth is mocked and scorned by many as being terrible. And yeah, it's not good. But to hear the people, maybe this isn't about costumes, but talking about, no, actually they were, they were talking about Barry Pepper. Maybe it was his makeup as much as his costume. He was dressed as a cyclo. Is that what? Gosh, I wish I didn't know that. But he was just talking about how that turned him into that thing. And he was really able to evoke that. And I'm like, oh man, it, it was so much better with the commentary track on than off because the making of that movie at least was something of interest, whereas the movie was terrible. That's the thing that's kind of a bummer is that you don't know how your movie is going to turn out when you're making it. You have to put your whole self into something regardless of what the outcome will be because you don't know how it's going to be edited. You don't know what the studio is going to do with it. You don't know what studio is going to buy your movie. I've run the gamut with making a ton of different indie movies and not knowing where they're going to go. And some go to Netflix and then they don't get to be in the big theater and I don't get to see it on the big screen, which is kind of a bummer. But then also it's a lot more accessible to people. So there's goods and bads with wherever movies go. But you work your hardest no matter what the project is. And I've had a few clunkers. (laughs) But I'm still proud of my work in them. And so for me, that's what I can take away is that maybe it wasn't the best movie, but I did everything I could on my end. And so I can't feel bad about it. Every person with an Academy Award as well has had a few clunkers. That's part of the job of making art is that it can't all come out good and you take risks and the rest of it. Exactly. And you have no control over so many things. So you just control what you can do and let it be. (laughs) Do you bump against budgets as well when it comes to this? I mean, have you ever tried to do something and had someone come back and say, yeah, we, we don't have... There's definitely movies that I've interviewed for and then knowing what the movie was and the budget that they were going to have, I turn them down because it was not possible. What they wanted wasn't possible. I'm very good at thrift shopping. I'm very good about moving things around. I am very frugal. You sort of know what is possible and what's not the more movies that you do. So when it comes to, you know, the last couple that I've been on, you make a budget and you present it and you're like, this is what's actually realistic. They may give you a number before you make your budget. It doesn't really matter until I make my budget and be like, okay, this is what I think is realistic. You can tell me to cut it all I want, but this is what it's actually going to cost. And then oftentimes that's exactly what it does cost. I try to work with production as much as possible. And that's a message to all the artists out there. No matter what art you're making, it, it still does come down to dollars and cents. So is that why? It doesn't look like you've done a full-on like sci-fi or fantasy thing, you know, something where you're really you can't go to thrift shops. Probably you got to be everything from scratch. The biggest one, you know, Gatsby. We made every single costume from scratch, so that was very much one of those not sci-fi, but we definitely created everything because twenties things now are falling apart because they're a hundred years old. So we had to make everything custom. Uh, in piercing, for example, 
my budget in comparison to the rest of the movie was very large because it was a smaller movie and not a lot of characters, but half the costumes were custom. So his suits were custom. The latex bodysuits were custom. I made Mia Wasikowska's second outfit myself from scratch and I needed eight duplicates because of blood continuity. So I, in order to save money, made them all myself because I can. So I sort of worked within the budget that I had. But when I first was talking to my producers, I was like, if you want this movie to look the way we all want it to, you're going to have to double the budget. And they did it for me (laughs) because it was the look that we wanted especially with not so many characters. But yeah, it's definitely knowing what things cost, what amount. And if you're going to make something custom, it's about five times more. You could just CGI it. (laughs) Have you had to do that yet where you design something, but yet then they make it on the computer? I haven't done that yet. I'm sure one day I will. From what I understand, crowd scenes, like there's a reason that once you're at least in a CGI heavy film, they're just like, don't, dress people up as clone troopers. Don't get a million more Urukai. Just fill it out with... Just fill it. It's fine. I mean, in Happy Death Day 2 and our big basketball crowd scene, we only had about 500 extras. So we just moved them all around the gym. So every part of the shot you see, it's the same people. And then you fill it in. Well, so much for the magic of movie making. <laughs> and here I thought... It's a lot more expensive to get 10,000 people instead of 500. So you make do with 500 and you just move them around. So what's next? Are you working on anything exciting? So I'm here in Atlanta hoping that this movie will continue once we get past this global crisis. Um, so I'm hanging out in Atlanta for now. We're supposed to start up again on April 6th, but we'll see what happens. I just want to finish the movie no matter what timing is. It's a beautiful romantic comedy, drama heartfelt, it's funny, it's dark. It's kind of a wonderful story for MTV. They're restarting their film division, a la Napoleon Dynamite and things. So I'm in the middle of that. I interviewed for another movie that I hope to get, but we'll see what happens. (laughs) She'll find out a week before. Yeah, I'm sure. That's what seems to be happening is I find out and then a week later I move somewhere else. Is there like a big sketchbook of stuff that you haven't used that maybe you, I'm thinking about kind of by comparison, Tolkien, you know, designed these languages and then just basically came up with stories and excuse to put Elvin in something. And I would think as a costume designer, you know, just maybe designing stuff like, could you just make a story around this? I don't know. For me, I love making things for myself and I rarely get the time. So I have this pile of projects in my costume shop that I share with my friend Elise. And one day I'll get back there and be able to make more stuff. But I've only been able to make one thing for myself in the last three years. So that's something that I do in my spare time. That's a great idea, Mark, right? There are all these movies that are like Battle Los Angeles was just a couple effects guys who wanted to make a movie and it's just effects. And John Wick was just a stunt guy who wanted to make a movie and it's Pretty much stunts, and I think we need one that's just a costumer who wanted to make a movie. (laughs) Well, she has, within our friend group, we have a lot of people who could help make that happen, and Whitney certainly has some amazing collaborators that she usually works with. And you've been working with Bloomhouse a lot in particular, right? Yes, I've done two for them now. I just finished a movie called, uh, well, there's no official title yet, but it's a comedy thriller for 
Blumhouse horror. Um, Vince Vaughn plays a serial killer who swaps bodies with a high school girl played by Catherine Newton. So it's very entertaining. Can't wait for that one to come out later this year. We do not have an official title, so hopefully that will be released soon. <laughs> Tale as old as time. Yep. Yeah. And that was my second movie with them. But they're wonderful people, and I hope to keep making movies with them because I, I find myself in this horror thriller genre, which I do love. And it's so much fun to make movies in that world because you get to be a bit more heightened with colors and style and and choices. And often they're just such a blast to make. Well, I'm ready for you to do more with them, but like, let's throw some sci-fi in there and then let's get you a Marvel movie. That would be lovely because those are some of my favorite movies and I love sci-fi. I mean, I grew up on all the things. Whenever I was homesick from school, I'd either watch the Star Wars trilogy or Back to the Future trilogy or Indiana Jones trilogy. So give me an adventure movie, give me sci-fi, I'm in. Well, we discuss some of those things. So if you want to design costumes for our audio-only podcast, we will make sure at the (laughs) beginning of the episode to be like, nice shirt, Brian. Yeah, We will tell our listeners every time we're wearing it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you, you can design for us next time, so... Actually, I'm a lot more dressed up than I usually am for a podcast. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like being quarantined, I do find that when I have meetings that are online and people are going to see me, that I at least put some sort of effort into it. We're, we're usually recording in the mornings and I have just crawled out of bed, let's be honest. For me, it's that how do you want to make yourself feel? That's the thing that's so magical about clothing is that sometimes you just do it for yourself or you do it or how others are going to think about you, make an impression. I mean, I bring three suitcases worth of clothing to every movie I design because I want to make a good impression. And for me, that's showcasing that I am a designer. I'm a person who thinks about clothing. I think about the story that I'm trying to tell about myself and also what I'm going to do for the movie. And so for me, I'm constantly curating my aesthetic to everyone who meets me. It would be better. So Erica, in the early days of this podcast, she had that costumer that she was talking about who made her feel so comfortable that she encouraged her to just do the podcast nude. But we said, no, that is not appropriate. I love that story. It was so unexpected. I was so afraid. And there was something in the contract that said that I would be lightly dressed. And then when I got there, she got me to the point where I was like, oh, whatever. That like, it's just... On the other hand, I told my parents they shouldn't come because I would be too embarrassed to have them. Like, I would be completely feeling like everybody could see me and then I would be not in my character. But around people I didn't know, I just didn't care. There's that great sort of, oh, it doesn't matter because it's not people that I'm thinking about or it's the people instead of specific human beings. And it's about how she was able to make you feel comfortable and this is what this character needed. And this is why this is important. And that's the job. I'm not just a designer. I'm a psychologist. I'm a historian. You really need to get a... I read people. I see what people's feelings are when it comes to their clothes and what their preference is. What do they like, but they're not telling me they don't like. So it's really about... Half the job is about reading people and understanding what they're interested in, whether they can vocalize that or not. You guys should see some of the stuff that Whitney wears. It's so much fun. If you want to follow her on Instagram, she posts stuff that she can from the sets and also her daily wardrobe sometimes, which is full of fun sweaters and scarves and pins that are a lot of vintage. Yes, all the vintage. (laughs) It's so fun. I've been wearing as much here as I can to make myself feel better in this time of trauma. (laughs) 
That really resonated with me. I remember when I was young and I would get sick, whatever, and I'd be schlepping around just wearing my pajamas for days. And the first day I was feeling well enough to put shoes on, I always felt like I was coming back to the land of the living. And, And to this day, if I'm feeling like I just need to get a little bit more motivated or more in the zone, putting on shoes really still helps me as psychologically. I am wearing my unnamed slippers. I'm not giving them another plug just yet. And they're awesome, but... Like, there's something to be said about comfort, but also, like, I, there was three days last week, I was like, it's pajamas all day. And I just didn't feel good, but I was like, it's okay. And now I'm like, okay, I gotta wear real clothes. I would think it would be very different between film and theater, that theater, this is based just on my vast high school drama experience, but as a dude, wearing thick caked makeup for the only time in my life and with the hot lights on me, like I'm not going to be comfortable. Like there's no way that tweaking the wardrobe is going to make this less weird. A very different experience. Like you still want to make sure your actors are comfortable, but there's certain amount like Erica, I'm sure you can attest to this where this is what, just what you have to do and you're comfortable to a point, but you are still dancing in heels. You still have to have a certain amount of makeup on on stage. You still have to wear this. It's a period piece, wearing a girdle, wearing a corset, wearing those things that are an absolute must. And so I've definitely put my actors in some very uncomfortable situations because it was required by the script. But within those circumstances, I try to make them as comfortable as possible. Like in my movie, horror movie, The Eyes of My Mother, one of my actors had to be in like dirty white briefs in the middle of a barn in very cold upstate New York in October. So he was absolutely freezing, but it was necessitated by the script. So between takes, I would make sure he was warm. We'd get him, you know, it's just, it's not fun. And he hated it, but it was what, you know, we had to do. So how many duplicates of the dirty white briefs did you have to pre-dirty to have them ready to hand? Oh man, they were so disgusting. I felt very (laughs) bad for him because in the story, he's worn these same underwear for like 10 years straight. So it's pretty gross. (laughs) I had like five pairs. I just watched the trailer to that. I tried to watch the trailer to some of your videos. Oh, it's rough. It's real rough. It's, uh, I'm so proud of it, but it's a very disturbing movie. (laughs) There's no levity in that one. <laughs> well, yeah, and I should say piercing that if you're, you described it as a fantasy, something like not in the nice way. <laughs> no, <laughs> a scary fantasy. There's, but it's funny. <laughs> There's funny moments. Thank you for watching it, by the way. I know it's a very off the beaten path movie. <laughs> I was just thinking it was a Murakami thing, and I had to look up the fact that there are two different Murakamis and the difference between that. Yes, it's the, it's the oh. horror Murakami. <laughs> Gotcha. You guys, we did the Oscar podcast. And of course, that got me talking to Whitney about the costuming category. Now, did your favorite win? Did your pick win or not? Because I was surprised by what your pick was. Little Women won this year. Okay. And that was definitely my pick. Okay. But you also, for some reason, I thought I knew you liked The Irishman. I loved The Irishman. I think the thing that was so great about The Irishman is the subtlety of how the men's wear evolves in that really wide span of the story. I mean, you go over 30 plus years and the thing about men's wear in that time is that there's not a lot of changes. Everything was very subtle, but you have all these men who are very different from each other. And so, but everyone dresses up in that era. Everyone's wearing suits and ties. How do you make them distinctive? And I think all of the 
fabric choices and all of the styling elements and all the colors really aided you in knowing who everyone was and what their vibes were. So I thought that was extremely well done. But I love Little Women because not only is everything beautiful, but I loved the difference in color palette and texture between the memory and the real life, like they're in real time. She's thinking everything with sort of rose colored tinted glasses. And so when you look back at her memories, everything is a lot more colorful and pastel and beautiful. And it's all these subtle elements that really painted a beautiful picture and really helped push the story forward. Right. We talked about that, how some people were confused because the movie insisted on not giving us literal cues, but it was always so obvious. And I could tell a lot of things were going on to make it very obvious that we were skipping backwards and forwards. And that hadn't occurred to me that costumes were one of them. It really seemed more to me like it was the whole, the way it was shot and the color palette. I'm sure the costumes added to that in a way that was not noticeable, but in a way that they wanted. The literal clues don't always work. We are, for the next episode, I was watching that series, Unbelievable, on Netflix that Eric had recommended. And it's jumping forward in time. And I didn't realize that till like four episodes in because I just didn't like register. It was like <laughs> 2011, 2008. Like it just flew right over my head. <laughs> yeah, that happened to me with The Phantom Menace. I said, how does this take place after Return of the Jedi? And then finally, oh, that little kid, I get it. No, it's minor spoiler, that's Darth Vader. Wait, are you guys watching Witcher? Because that was one where I was like, what? Oh, this is not the same time period. Oh, so I haven't watched enough to get that that. (laughs) There were different things. I have not not seen it. Do you have a last, do you have a recommendation for us for something that we should just watch just for the costuming of a recent thing, Whitney? (laughs) Well, my favorite TV show costume-wise is Schitt's Creek. And that just ended its series run. So highly recommend that TV show for costumes. I read an article with Catherine O'Hara about how she has taken inspiration from Moira in that now when she travels, she mostly brings black with her or black and white with her because you don't have to pack as much and it, you can just mix and match whatever you want. And so the last time I left town, I, de- I had other things, but I tried to up my black wear. That's what I do when I travel like to go home is that I wear, I bring two black bottoms and mostly black top with, with really bright tops that can be mixed and matched. And it looks like I'm wearing a new outfit, but I'm not really. <laughs> it's all about, you know, trying to maximize your wardrobe. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So long, everybody. We're going to keep talking for the supporters a little bit. Go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop if you want to experience that otherwise so long thanks listeners bye fantastic get more pretty much pop at pretty much get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash pretty much pop pretty much pop is part of the partially examined life podcast network and it's also presented by openculture.com before shopify were you wondering where my sales at Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. Oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.